According to the testimony of Dominic Cummings, our Prime Minister didn't feel at the beginning of the pandemic that protecting the lives of people over 80 was a sufficient reason to shut down the economy. Some people have ghoulishly said that one upside of COVID is that it has reduced the aggregate burden of social care spending. Most of us strongly react against such thinking, yet equally many say they don't want to be kept alive near the end of their days if the quality of their life has disappeared, if they've become a burden to their community and their family. These are hugely important questions for us individually and for the country, but they're not easy ones to talk about. So how about raising them not in a think tank pamphlet or an ethical debate, but in a novel? A novel which starts with a couple facing the dilemmas of ageing and death, ranges from tragic accidents to utopian fantasies, and even drops in a bit of science fiction on the way. We'll be discussing that novel with its author on today's Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Lionel Shriver, author of an engrossing and highly entertaining book entitled Should We Stay or Should We Go? And Lionel's joining us from United States, I think. So Lionel, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Great. And how do things feel in America in terms of kind of COVID right now? Somewhere between relaxed and anxious. Cases are going up. Only about half of the country is vaccinated. Of course, we're all starting to get heebie-jeebies about just how effective these vaccines are. So, you know, the conversation continues. But at least in New York, life is pretty normal right now. And I never used to be grateful for that. Yes, we've all rather fallen back in love with normality, haven't we? Well, I think that's pretty similar to, to how things are here in the UK. Now, let's turn to the book. Your book we chose as the first fiction book we've done in 120 episodes of this podcast. And and it might seem crass to ask a novelist what the purpose of their book is. You can ask that question of nonfiction authors, of course, but fiction authors, that's a bit of a kind of mechanistic question. But I don't think it is in this case, because you were clearly, while I'm writing this book, you were clearly wanting to make a point or make lots of points. So what inspired you to choose this topic? Well, I think novels are better at asking questions than delivering answers. And this is typical of the genre in that sense. It's delivering a bunch of answers or no answers, or it's up to you. I think a novel should make you think as well as entertain you, but it's not necessarily meant to deliver moral lessons, certainly not clear ones. And I think a good novel throws the meaning of the work onto the reader. And that means, you know, the reader is participating in the exercise. And you're not going to necessarily draw the same conclusions from this book as I might. I was originally moved to write it just from a remark a friend of mine made. She was already about 60, so I didn't take this as some kind of whimsy or youthful ignorance. She announced that she didn't want to live beyond the age of 80. And I couldn't help but wonder whether or not, once she became 80, whether she'd be proactive about it or just think, oh, well, that's maybe how it looked from 60, but actually at 80, it's not so bad, given what the alternative is. 
So I designed a book in which a couple makes this resolution that they will commit joint suicide at the age of 80 once the, the slightly younger of the two arrives at that birthday. And because they're, they don't want to burden the NHS, they also don't want to go through what the wife's father did, extended and tortuous uh, dementia. So, you know, you can pretty much turn the page after the first chapter, and there you are, you know. <laughs> They're turning 80. What are they going to do? So it's a parallel universe book that develops 12 different possible conclusions to this plot. You know, one of them goes through with it, the other doesn't. And as you noted, you know, some of the latter chapters actually get into science fiction, you know, successful cryogenics, or uh, even a cure for aging, and they effectively live forever. I have to say, I cannot remember the last time I had more fun writing a book. No, well, that was, I felt that as a reader, I felt that you were having a lot of fun writing the book. And that was actually, that was one of the qualities of the book I really enjoyed was the kind of sense that we haven't spoken, we're speaking now, but I kind of felt that there was almost a dialogue going on with you as the writer, which was, I wanted to say, okay, come on then, Lionel, where are you taking me next? And, and then you would go somewhere really interesting. Now, one of the things about the book is that it's, so I've read two types of books in this kind of COVID era. One of books where clearly what's happened is that the publisher has said to the author, look, COVID's happened. You need to go through the text and insert COVID in every chapter so that the book doesn't feel dated. And there's quite a lot. Then there's a few books now which are about COVID and what we should draw from it. But this, in a sense, is the most post-COVID book I've read in, in that COVID is just part of the reality of it. It's integral to the story, but the story could exist without COVID. But I, I, it made me wonder, to what extent, you must have thought about the book and planned the book before COVID. To what extent do you think that COVID changed the way you approached the book? Ultimately, COVID did not change the way I approached the book. As you note, it's simply one more thing that happens in the course of the book. And it was useful to be able to explore the character's different relationship to it. But, you know, the funny thing was that I started this book on Boxing Day of 2019. So obviously I didn't know anything about COVID. And I had it all planned out. And I had several chapters done. I wrote this book very quickly. That's what happens when you're having a good time. You know, you're, you're looking forward to getting to work. And then suddenly, you know, it was latter March and the world changed. At the very start, I thought, oh, no, what's this done to me? Because I had originally chosen the date of the 29th of March, 2020, which was when I started the book, three months in advance, right? I was planning towards this birthday, the wife's birthday, when they would have to make the decision. I chose the 29th of March because the year before, that was the date when the UK was supposed to leave the European Union. So it mirrored my dilemma of should we stay or should we go? So it wasn't an arbitrary date. And I wanted it to be very contemporary when it was published. So that's why I was pushing the program a bit. So I figured to begin with, you know, oh, it's only three months in advance. You know, what's going to happen in three months? <laughs> <laughs> it's just hilarious. So the joke was on me. 
I could, of course, have chosen to change the date or the year. It wouldn't have cost me all that much. But I could already tell that this was a watershed event and that the period after COVID would be regarded as the modern era. And anything before that would suddenly foreshorten into ancient history. And I didn't want the book to be ancient history. So I just wove it in. And it actually ended up being a boon for the book and not a problem. Because, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this point. There's, you know, there's one point in, in, they get to this birthday and here they're trying to decide, you know, do they go through with their vow and, and kill themselves? And suddenly, you know, all around them, other elderly people are dropping like flies and they realize that nobody's even going to notice <laughs> if yes. they commit joint suicide. They've been overtaken by events. And that was just a fun irony to, to throw in there. And furthermore, the, the husband is, has been portrayed from the beginning as something of an ideologue. So it was his proposition to begin with that they fasten on to this arbitrary date when they're going to head for the exit. So this is another opportunity for my friend Cyril to mouth off and be an expert about something that he doesn't necessarily know that much about. I really liked the idea that you make this commitment and you make it without, of course, thinking about how the world is going to change. And it reminded me, I think there's a bit, I don't understand, it's going to sound pretentious, but there's a bit in Proust where Swan writes a letter and Bruce says, of course, he writes the letter without realising that by the time the letter is read, the world will have turned. And I think COVID, you're quite right, COVID kind of adds to the book because it's a wonderful example of how you make a commitment in abstract. And then, of course, all sorts of things change. And then you're confronted by the fact that you made this decision in a different world. And is it really that the world has changed or is it just that you've got cold feet? And that's kind of one of the conversations they're having. Now, you, you've mentioned Cyril and, and one of the other joys of the book for me is really just about, and there are other people in it and rather typically of you, Lan, although some rather unpleasant children in the book. But, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of, of course, course there are. <laughs> but Kay and Cyril are, you know, really engaging characters. I felt I knew them really well by the, by the end of the book. I also couldn't help playing this little game, Lionel, which is to try to attribute which bits of their view of the world were yours and the ways in which I, I kind of, so I thought, I think Kay's Brexit view might be, you know, quite close to yours to kind of like, I'm progressive, but why do I, why do you have to assume that I'm opposed to Brexit just because I'm progressive? I might have an independent thought. I wondered whether Cyril's sceptical views about COVID shutdown, lockdown, I ought to know more about what you've been saying about these things, but was there an extent to which you kind of thought, well, who will I use to voice this opinion? Is it Kay or is it Cyril that, that I'm going to get to make these points? Because actually they make them rather convincing ways. You know, I tried to represent both sides of Brexit at the same time. You know, my, my personal views are a matter of public record. So yes, I did on balance support leave, though I could easily have gone the other way because I could certainly put together a good case for remaining in the EU. I, for once in my life, could see both sides to this. So it wasn't hard to ventriloquize into Cyril a passionate Remainer stance. I've certainly been subjected to enough of it since 2016, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <laughs> I think we could all <laughs> write those passages. 
And Kay's perspective is not especially ideological. It's not that important to her. But she doesn't like being pushed around. Yeah, exactly. And most of all, doesn't like being bullied by her husband. She's a generation older than I am. And so grew up in a much more traditional culture where women were more subservient and has gradually got more rebellious. And so when she, you know, went to the polling booth, she just as a matter of impulse voted leave and didn't tell her husband. It's more an act of personal rebellion than political rebellion. Well, in a similar way that Cyril is a personal rebel when it comes to COVID, because you know the vast majority of health professionals are on the kind of cautious side, but Cyril thinks that the shutdown is, he's quite opposed to that. So they both got that kind of streak in them, but in, but in different parts of their, of their lives. And there is something rather romantic about the book, though, as well. I want to get into kind of a couple of the issues in a minute, but this is a wonderful love affair they have. Now, not in all the scenarios, and I'm not going to spoil the scenario, but overall, there is something rather lovely about their relationship and their ability to talk these things through. So there is surprisingly a kind of, there's a love story here as well, isn't there? I think you're right. And that was certainly my intention. There's a way in which when you go through with them, all these different iterations, obviously the structure would seem to be repetitive, but it isn't exactly because over the course of the book, the the characters develop and change. So there is an, an element of growth with both of them. And this is especially the case in the more sci-fi chapters where they, for example, live forever. And they almost change places as characters because Kay gets impatient with all this infinite choice and becomes much more cynical and almost bitter Whereas Cyril kind of opens up and becomes more philosophical and in some ways kinder, far less ideological. He abandons his socialism. He doesn't care about the Labour Party anymore. <laughs> and this sort of swap places. And I like that. It's it, it, Little by little, it, it's almost an exploration of what character is and how much we're capable of transformation. And especially in that eternal life chapter, the feeling you get is that not only do people start trying on different partners, different careers, but they start trying on different characters. They get bored with being themselves and yearn to become someone else. So the eternal life chapter is great fun. Some of the scenarios, however, are pretty bleak probably i think the bleakest is where they end up in a kind of psychiatric institution of course i've been placed there by their their lovely children when i read the bleaker scenarios i guess there were times when i felt i wish you two had never had this conversation at all why did you embark on this look where it's ended you up in this terrible position is that a kind of parallel for the fact that as a society, we don't really want to have to talk about these issues because they will throw up all sorts of really challenging possibilities? Well, in some ways, the book needs the bleaker chapters because the question posed at the very beginning, you know, 
is it best to make a clean departure before everything goes to hell? It's real and it is consequential. In other words, if they don't go through with it, they potentially invite all the things that motivated them to make the vow in the first place. So what were they afraid of? They were afraid of infirmity, of dementia, or even of living too long and becoming very elderly and fragile in a future that they can't predict. One of the main characters in the book is the outside world. And that's that's the character you can't predict more than any other. So there's one chapter, as you know, where they live to beyond a hundred, but at the same time, Western civilization has gone to hell. I mean, Europe has been completely overrun by migration. There's some suggestion it may have to do with climate change or just population growth. And it's at the same time, the younger generation has embraced anarchism and total destruction. And so Parliament is burned down and the National Gallery has had all its paintings stripped in shreds. And, you know, it's a purposefully apocalyptic vision. And it's trying to pose the question, and by the way, this is a question I can't answer for myself. If things are going to get that bad, if the future holds the destruction of everything you hold dear, are you curious enough to want to live to see it? Or would you rather spare yourself, live a little less long, and go out in a state of happy ignorance? And I I find that, especially since I think that right around the time that if I live as long as, say, my paternal grandfather, who died at 96, you know, right about that time, mid-century, is when every index that I follow is at crisis point. You know, population, water supply, etc. Everything potentially goes to hell. If it's as bad as I fear, do I want to live to see that or not? I think it's an interesting question. Well, it is. And and I thought that was the the idea above all and so many ideas in the book but that kept coming back to me which is this question of not knowing because it cuts both ways on the one hand not knowing our future is the thing that leads us to hope that we can somehow defy the odds that we will be the people who live till 104 and you know drop dead in a wine bar having had a great evening out and never having lost our kind of physical and mental faculties we hope that that might happen and not knowing leads us to think, well, maybe maybe it will be different for me. But then on the other hand, not knowing is in a sense why Cyril has the idea in the first place, because he says the only way we can have agency in our lives, because we are subject to this lottery, the lottery of whether we'll get Alzheimer's or whatever, is to take matters into our own hands. So this this problem of not knowing can lead you to very different kinds of conclusions, can't it? Yes. I mean, there's a kind of implicit passivity in submitting to the future, you know, come what may. But that's, that's part of the bargain. And unfortunately, in this scenario, the only, the, the main agency they can exercise is negative. 
right? It's to quit. But otherwise, you know, we're all victimized by events. We can make our little plans, but they go awry. And I mean, that's, that's definitely one of the little lessons, one of the many little lessons that you might choose to draw from this book is that, oh, you can, <laughs> you can make these determinations, but, you know, the rest of the world has other plans for you. I run a health organization now, and, and I had a conversation with somebody the other day about what kind of research projects we might do as an organization. And, and he said, well, you should do something about end of life because, you know, as we know, and as Cyril says in the book repeatedly, that's where we spend an enormous proportion of health spending is on the very end of people's lives and often sustaining lives which don't have very high quality. And there is something perverse about us doing that at the same time as, for example, in this country, we've got a kind of, you know, ever-growing waiting list for children and young people who need mental health services, for example. So why on earth are we not investing in young people's mental health and instead investing in the last few weeks and months of people's lives? Now, when he said that to me, I said, look, I agree. And of course, it's obvious. But what's the point of embarking on such a project if the only conclusion you think it's possible to come to is some form of euthanasia, some you know expansion in the people's ability to choose to end their own lives. And that feels like a debate that goes round and round and round in circles. Was it your intent, Lana, in writing the book to try to help us find a way of talking about these issues? Or do you think that in a way it is only through a novel that we can talk about them because they are so controversial, so sensitive? I think a novel is a better vehicle. There's something about that assisted dying debate that always feels flat to me. In fact, weirdly boring. <laughs> it's too abstract. It only comes alive in the individual instance. You know, if your father is dying, then it's real. And otherwise, it's just sort of out there as a, as a notion. This is only important when it's not a notion, when it involves somebody that you care about deeply or it involves yourself, right? You know, I'm out here in, in the journalistic world. I would probably argue for assisted dying laws. I think it's an option that I would want available. But one of the things I came to realize in writing the novel is the incredible power of the desire to survive, which is another thing that you don't entirely have control over. Even your body wants to survive. It will fight until the very last organ fails to remain alive. And that means actually that you can pass all the assisted dying laws you want, but they're not going to be very many people who actually use them because the drive to live is so overpowering. You know, also out here in abstract journalism land, I would advocate that we all sit down and consider under what circumstances life would be intolerable enough that we would like to decline further medical treatment. 
And I think this is more realistic than committing to some arbitrary date, as my characters do, or necessarily booking for Dignitas in Switzerland. To consider, say, if, if we were to be unconscious with very little chance of returning to ourselves, we're not, we're not say, oh, please kill me, you know, don't, don't necessarily poison me, but don't give me another course of chemotherapy or, you know, just keep me comfortable. If I have a terminal diagnosis and I am, you know, probably only weeks away from dying, don't waste your resources on me. If I am suffering and I, I am experiencing no pleasure in life, save the bother, the money, save me the pain and use that money on younger people. I mean, you do, it is a big social issue that we are spending a huge proportion of our medical resources on people who are very old, usually in the last few weeks of their lives, when they're not enjoying themselves, in fact, far from it. And somehow we have to evolve a more productive protocol because health resources are limited and you know you can't spend an infinite amount on on everyone it's just economically impossible and i think it's younger people who are being cheated here i agree lana and for me it's really about giving permission to your loved ones and to health professionals to help you end your life without feeling guilty without feeling that somehow this means that they didn't care about you and they and they didn't love you and my experience of people and you know you and I I'm sure both have known lots of people who've who've kind of lived through this is the sense that somehow you are failing your loved one if you don't keep them alive to the very very last moment you can even though you know even though it's clear this is not providing anything for them so I agree with you and I think the the book is not a polemic in that sense but it it, it, it does get us to think harder about this. And as a, the very minimum as a society, we should be talk, we, we should have better ways of talking about it. And I also agree with you that too often the conversation does feel a, bit, feel a bit flat and and not real. And maybe that's what a novel does, is a novel does help us think ourselves into what it would be like for us. The book has got these 12 scenarios. And I, in the end, I, I was kind of thinking, well, what did I take from that? What would I kind of take as advice to myself? What would your book kind of lead me to think about the best way of thinking about these things. And I, I came to the conclusion there were kind of two positions which I felt were adopted at various points in the book, which felt like the best positions, neither of them being perfect. One is a kind of thoughtful fatalism, a kind of look, what will be, will be. And so, no, I'm not going to end my life at 80, but I'm also not going to pretend that I'm going to be able to live to 104 and nothing will go wrong. I'm just going to accept that, you know, I'm not in control and I'll make the best of it. And that kind of thoughtful fatalism is one reasonable approach to to life. And the other is a brave determination to take control, as exhibited by, by Cyril in particular. But don't do that with a kind of sense of self-delusion and fantasy. Don't imagine that by making a decision to take control, it'll somehow be easy, that the doubt will go away. It will still be there. So I, yeah, I took in the end, you can choose thoughtful fatalism or you can take kind of realistic 
kind of grasping of autonomy. Those are the positions to adopt. And what is to be avoided is just giving up on the one hand or fantasizing on the other. No, that's very nicely put. You know, next time I need to write back copy for a book, I'll come to you. (laughs) (laughs) And then this final thing, Lionel, and there is one thing about the book that's unrealistic in the sense that, you know, I mean, it's got science fiction and it's not an attempt to be realistic in lots of ways. It's an attempt to be engaging and thought-provoking, which it absolutely achieves. But, and the one thing is that in the end, although not in every scenario, in most of the scenarios, Kay and Cyril have each other. And actually, of course, really the thing that is often the hardest for older people is being alone. And that is the sort of one bit of this book which kind of is different from how many, many people will experience this, is they're not going to have a K or a Cyril to talk to about it. What we do about that, that seems to be another really big question for us, is is just the loneliness and isolation of many people facing some of the issues you talk about in the book and how K and Cyril are in the end privileged because they have each other to talk to. Yes, that that is one scenario that the book underexplores because it's not the main subject, but certainly one of my private dreads is an extended period of time without my husband. And, you know, anyone with a longstanding marriage knows exactly the kind of fear I'm talking about. It's not that we can't live without our spouses. In some ways, the horrible part of it is that we can but the diminishment is so painful, and 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 I think it must. If you've had a, a very successful marriage, it must be painful on a daily basis. And that, to me, is what's really hard: is to continue on without your partner. And more broadly, of course, one of the terrible prices to pay for living an especially long life is that you don't necessarily just lose your spouse. You lose your friends. You lose all your other relatives from your generation. By the time my grandfather died at 96, well, you know, he had some direct relatives, his, you know, his progeny, their children, but he had no friends anymore. They were all dead. And he was lonely. And it was heartbreaking. It's um, it's, it's kind of interesting way of putting the dilemma in your book, which is which is a bigger tragedy to have a lot of people at your funeral or to have nobody at your funeral. Lionel, it's been fantastic talking to you. Should we stay or should we go? Is a wonderful book. I can strongly recommend it. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.